welcome to the Emotional Horsemanship Podcast. I am your host, Lockie Phillips, and I help deeply caring equestrians create emotionally balanced horses with science, empathy, and feel. This podcast is a safe place for anyone who desires a better future for horses and for the equestrian lifestyle. I hope that you will enjoy these solo and collaborative episodes where we enjoy a deep insight into our horses' worlds and ways in which we can make that better for them. If you love horses and are willing to do right by them, you're going to love this podcast. And I thank you for being here. Hello, how are you? How many of us actually answer that question honestly? How many of us, when we ask our horses, hello, how are you, actually are willing and able to receive an honest answer from the horse? How many of us, when we ask our horses or ourselves or others, hello, how are you, are willing and able to receive the honest truth there? When I was living in Poland, I was delighted to discover that if you ask a Polish person, hello, how are you? You're going to get the truth. Oh, well, my grandma is sick and my knee is hurting and I'm poor. Whatever the thing is, they're going to tell you the truth. But many of us in Western culture, and not everyone in Poland, I must add, when asked, hello, how are you? What do we say? I'm fine, thanks, are you? How often is that the truth? Are you safe enough to tell the truth? Does your horse feel safe enough to be truthful with you? How many horses, when we ask them anything, much less greet them, feel safe to give us the truth? How many horses whom we attribute as being just fine? They're fine. Get on with it. They're fine. You can do that. They're fine. You're not harming them. They're fine. How many of those horses are actually fine? Because if we scratch the surface, it's been my experience that not only are many of these horses not fine, but a lot of their people aren't fine either. The equestrian industry has a reputation for being a pretty brutal place. A glamorous surface, but a pretty brutal underbelly. My previous experiences as a professional dancer were exactly the same. Glamorous surface, brutal underbelly. So, in many ways, I felt quite at home in the transition into the equestrian world. It was an easy transition in that respect. Also, when I was a dancer... Dancers are creatures of movement. They serve leaders as instruments of movement. We're not allowed to speak. We are not allowed to speak up, speak back, or even have an opinion about what we're being asked to perform with our body. Can you imagine being asked to perform movement that felt painful, difficult, undignified, uncomfortable, stupid, not fun, being forced to do it, and then when your face told the truth that you weren't liking what you were doing, you were punished for that. And when I say punished, I really mean punished. You would think in a professional setting that there wouldn't be systemic abuse, but you would be wrong about the dance industry and that capacity. You would think that in an equestrian industry where a vulnerable animal is supposed to be the center of attention, you would think you would find more advocacy. You think you would find more consent and more thinking of this animal. I think we would be wrong to assume that. Sometimes I've assumed that 
very naively. And even in these modern horse training movements, very quickly, some of these modern horse training movements move away from horses. Whole conferences about horses where there's not a horse to be seen. What's that about? Whole podcast episodes where there's not even a photo of a horse and a horse is barely mentioned. Very quickly, some of these movements around horses move away from horses. If it is to be a movement about horses, then we need to move with the horses and resist the temptation to move into a cult of personality. So if someone was to ask me today, hello, how are you? If I am to give an honest answer, I would say I'm good, but I'm also tired. I'm tired because I deliver services to over 60 people every week at this moment in time. It is currently February 2024. I'm aware that that's an unsustainable business model. I'm aware that at 60 people a week, I will have to move eventually into seasonal availability so that I'm able to find moments of rest. But at this moment, I feel like I'm managing that. I absolutely love every single person who I'm working with at the moment. I mean, really not saying that really love every single person I'm working with. I am blessed to have the best clients and students in the world. I would count them as friends. There's a pretty disturbing saying, but it says like, if you needed to hide a body, who would you call? I would call any of my clients. <laughs> like they're, they're that level of um, security, trust, safety, they are just amazing every single one of them. And they're also gifted in their own ways. They're also gifted. So when I love, I can serve 50 to 60 plus people a week. And I'm aware and humble before the fact that that's not the truth for many equestrian professionals. Many equestrian professionals, trainers, instructors, coaches, fundamentally don't feel safe in their own work. They don't feel safe with the people they serve. They feel like they're expected to rush things. Turns out good horse training is more than just an attitude adjustment from the trainer. It's actually a business logistic. You cannot train a horse properly if you're rushing that horse because the client has put the trainer under pressure. You cannot serve a horse selflessly if you're dealing with a rider who wants the horse to jump before the horse is ready. You cannot serve a horse safely, congruently, and deliver good welfare to them if someone is determined to get their ride because they want that. And the horse takes second place. The horse plays second fiddle. So it's business logistics. And I know nothing about business. I know so much nothing about business that I have to engage more or less full-time support in how to run a business. I basically play business checkers when everyone else is playing business chess. So with me, you don't have to worry. What's my angle? Read between his lines. What's he really saying? I will tell you what I mean all the time. I will speak directly to it. I don't get on very well with people where you have to read the writing on the wall and play four-dimensional chess to understand their true intention. I will always tell you directly and kindly if I can, as kindly as I can, really where I stand. Some people have said that that's a trait of someone who is not neurotypical. I'll take that. But then those same people have often weaponized the perceived neuroatypicality of me against me. I don't know if that's a true word. Neuroatypicality. I don't know if that's a true word. Don't write me. <laughs> don't write me if that's not a true word. So I'm doing well. I'm at home in my business. I'm at home in my body. I've never felt more 
settled and at peace and safe than I do right now. I have four horses, one of which will join us this summer. He's a baby. Three others are other people's throwaways, but I adore them. One of them has cancer, we believe. One of them has arthritis and is on a journey to rediscover his body. And the other one is completely retired and has dignity, respect, and care at a six-star level every day. And they're right here below my window. So it's from this place of safety, knowing that, hello, how are you? I'm okay, but I'm a little tired, but I'm okay. Starting a podcast terrifies me. What's the truth? Starting a podcast terrifies me. I've been on a bunch of other podcasts at this stage, um, and the first five conversations, um, my hands shook. I was so scared. Just like the first three online courses I made, my hands shook as I spoke to the camera alone in my own office or in my own fields. So again, starting a pod scares me because I don't have any work to hide behind here. I don't have a horse to hide behind. And I don't even have my typical like tropes of giving knowledge, dropping knowledge to hide behind, though you will find that I will try any opportunity to hide behind what I know so that you don't have to know really who I am. Because who I am belongs to me. I don't want it to belong to other people. Who I am belongs to me, and I don't want that up for public debate. I'm not interested in standing in the town square to have people throw tomatoes or people to throw flowers. I'm not interested in that. I love being a private person. I say all the time, I used to dream of being invisible, but I must actually show who I am because naively, I've had to admit that who I am is someone who has the opportunity to step into a leadership role, at least for a certain type of person, and it would be selfish to allow my life to be only for me, and that if my life could be of service in towards others, other people, a community, and the animals that I love, then it is my duty to surrender to that. So, though doing a podcast scares me, I feel ready to surrender to it, and I promise to avoid Letting this podcast become a trap where it becomes a cult of my own personality. In fact, to prepare for running a podcast and to prepare, as my mentor Christiane tells me, that I'm going to be some sort of leader for some sort of community, to prepare for it, I've been doing nothing but watch watching documentaries about cults on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Cults. And it's scary. It's scary to see how easy it is for some people to step into the role of guru and to develop cults around it. It, it, it even seems to be harder to resist that and easier for that to allow to happen. If you just stand there and you have something others don't have in your thoughts, your, your speech, your knowledge, your actions, and all of the above, people will flock around you and throw their agency away before you, even if you don't try, that in fact, to not run a cult and be a leader, you have to take an active role in giving people back their agency four-dimensionally as much as you can. Because if a horse trainer stops remembering that they are a horse trainer and then has a community about training horses, have we kind of missed the point? So... 
Though I have not always been, I have not always trained horses or worked with horse people for a living, in my heart, I believe I've always been a horse trainer, even though I had another side quest before this career. Because even as a child, I drew them, I dreamed them, I played as them, I imagined them, and them is, of course, horses. But in my drawings, my dreamings, my play, and my imagination as a child, the horses always appeared from their perspective. I did not dream about me with a ribbon on a horse. I never dreamt about me doing the thing on the horse. I dreamt about being a horse, what that was like to be a horse. I wanted to be a horse. And so that has been a thread that has remained absolutely intact and unviolated to this day, despite all the work modalities that I've gone through in my life, both inside the equestrian sphere and outside, the thread remains true that my dream is to understand what it's like to be a horse rather than to do things onto horses and with them. That is the side quest. That is the plan B. That is the side dish. That is the se second step. That is the beta to the alpha, the beta and the omega to the alpha. And the alpha is, what is this like for them first? And then what is this like for me second? In my equestrian service provider role so far, I have fitted saddles. I have taught at summer camps. I have volunteered at rescue, rehab, and non-profit organizations. I've guided treks in the mountains of the Spanish Sierra Nevada. I have prepared horses for that advanced trail work in multiple capacities. I've been the first rider to some horses thrown at them like a sacrificial lamb. I've faced down aggressive and dangerous horses on my own. I've prepared serial kickers for the farrier successfully, and I've even trimmed hooves for the public, getting slammed up against stable walls by unhandled horses. I've been a traveling riding instructor, sometimes driving three hours to work below the poverty line for a couple of clients because they asked me to. I've even spent a short time apprenticing with a Portuguese or Oliveira-style dressage master. I've ridden anxious horses solo out in back country where even there was no mobile reception. I've completed overnight expeditions with horses. Not enough, in my opinion. This is something that I really enjoy. I've managed stables. I've attended colics. I've been on call during a fire evacuation preparation. I've attended graveyard shifts in the middle of the night to help premature-born foals to stand and drink from their dam. I've experienced almost every breed that I can think of, everything from Akalteques to Warmbloods, Arabs, Spanish horses, of course, drafts and cobs, Welsh ponies, thoroughbreds, Icelandics, mules, donkeys, mixed breeds, and even your uncle's random horse down the road, up to big money Grand Prix jumping horses. And despite this huge variety of activities and breeds and inputs, this is the truth. As far as I know it, I have rarely felt confused around horses or about horses. That does not mean I always knew what to do, yes? But I've never really felt confused in the negative. I understand that confusion is cognition. 
confusion is cognition. So I've always lent into confusion without resistance because I know that confusion will always become clarity when you allow the confusion in without it triggering your ego. So just put your ego on the shelf, allow the confusion in because confusion is basically new information entering your brain. And if you reject it from ego, you're rejecting new information. This might explain the problems we find ourselves in as a horse-centered community. My learning curve has been really steep. I've never been in a rush with myself as a horse person. And I think because I've never been in a rush, I think that contributed towards my rapid learning curve. And I have so, so much more work to do. And because of that, I am thrilled to announce here on the pod that it is my intention that horses are a lifelong endeavor for me. Whether I ride and own horses or not, they are a lifelong endeavor for me at this time. Let's take a break. So, what is emotional horsemanship? You can go to emotionalhorsemanship.com where you can explore this progressive, simple horse training modality that is really designed with the recreational private owner in mind. Have you ever struggled to find an instructor or a coach locally to you that understood you, understood your need to not force or rush horses, and understood your need and desire to train gently, patiently, kindly? Well, if you can't find that locally, I will stand up and I'll be that for you remotely. I have options for lessons, courses, programs, clinics, you name it, there's an option for you. I have really accessible options via self-study video libraries, moderate options that include private services and community coaching, all the way up to live-in retreats on my own farm in Spain. I'm proud to partner with a range of equestrian businesses from Horses Home, INB, Mudgrid Solutions, to a piece of hay, slow feeders, customized slow feeders, all the way through to Black Balance, Equine Probiotic Supplements, Alagani Mountain Saddlery, and Plateau Saddlery. I thank these people and these companies for supporting me in my journey. Let's return to the episode at hand continuing this solo introduction to the Emotional Horsemanship podcast. And all of this new information, I have learned for sure that most horses tell me, I put that in inverted commas, most horses tell me that they have lived pretty crappy lives. And most of those horses remain sound of mind and heart despite it. That despite their pretty crappy life, that they're aware was pretty crappy, that they're okay. They are grace and forgiveness personified. That despite it all, they are okay, most of them. Most horses that I've met, I know for sure, seem to dream better for themselves, but are usually pretty happy with what they have even if it's not perfect. And I wish more horse people could embody that, that you don't have to be perfect. And then there are the loud horses. Those are the ones that I tend to be shown the most nowadays because no one comes to emotional horsemanship because everything's going fine with their horse and they're getting everything that they want. And these loud horses, they tend to tell me a few things very consistently. They tend to tell me, I am uncomfortable, I am in pain, 
my life is stressful for me and the people are not listening. Not because they're bad people, but they don't even know how to listen to me. They treat me like an alien. Whereas if we scroll back enough millions of years, horses and humans have the same basic evolutionary ancestor, and yet we treat them like aliens. We really do treat them like aliens. Have we been gaslighted by the anti-anthropomorphic movement into treating horses as something entirely alien to us and in the process totally neglected that we are more similar than we are not, that we have more in common with horses than we do with our differences? Have we neglected that? Too many horse people remain, in my opinion, fundamentally selfish. Sorry about it. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Too many horse people, in my opinion, remain fundamentally selfish, in my opinion. That equestrianism and horses is more of a pageant where the horse is a style prompt, a parade of people extracting from horses their desires and really deeply struggling when horses do not give them what they want. And I put my hand up and say that I have been part of that problem too. I would never criticize someone before putting myself underneath the same microscope. I have been part of that problem too. For example, I have been in situations where I wanted to ride and the horse wasn't relaxed, wasn't obeying, wasn't doing what I wanted, and that pissed me off. I've been in that place. I know what that feels like. And because I know what that feels like, I'm able to recognize that in others because that is empathy. You cannot empathize with others things that you have not experienced yourself. And that goes true for be it a human, a horse, a dog, a cat, or a goldfish. Unless you've gone through it yourself, you cannot empathize with it for others. And a lot of people go through things without being honest because, hello, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Are you giving a dishonest there, giving a dishonest answer there? prevents you from going through the things you're going through and prevents you from developing an empathic point of reference that you can then apply practically in a horsemanship scenario. It's just like the child at the checkout. Has anyone ever been to a supermarket and seen a a parent beleaguered by usually a toddler or similar child pointing at the impulse purchase candy at the checkout and saying, mum, dad, or otherwise, I want that. And parent says, no, we're not taking that because it's not good for you. And what does the child often do? Cry, scream, have a tantrum. And through that tantrum, they then get what they want. Does that child then grow up to be a horse owner and have a tantrum on their horse when they don't get what they want? The child at the checkout. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about it in myself. And I try and bring as much self-awareness to my practice as possible so that I can be constantly screening myself for selfishness in real time as I'm working a horse. I love everyone, but I would like to gently invite all of us to grow up a little bit. And that growing up a little bit doesn't have to be unfun or unpleasant. In fact, I think the grass is greener on the other side of this because I would like us all to just consider a little bit more, the vulnerable animal that is before us as the alpha to the beta of our desires. Good horsemanship, turns out, is equal parts horse keeping, horse lifestyle and diet, etc. 
that is an important part of good horse training. You can't train a horse ethically if that horse is dealing with problems in their other 23 hours of the day. Good horsemanship is so. Good horsemanship is equal parts horse keeping, equine advocacy, being able to advocate for the horse in real time as you're working with them, a technical skill set, so the actual timing and feel of the techniques that you're using and what techniques you're using, Welfare, so that's the health of the animal, the style and type and severity of tool use you choose to align with. And then the last element here is self-awareness and that selflessness that is necessary. I think that this is the ingredients of horsemanship. If you think of good horsemanship, of effective, kind, gentle, real horsemanship that gives you true results over a long period of time and long-term success with a horse well into their dotage, well into their advanced age. Think of it as a soup that you have to reverse engineer. You see cut up carrots and celery and a, a red liquid. Well, that red liquid might have been tomato. You know, if you look at a really happy horse working well with a person, what is the parts and pieces of that? Can we reverse engineer that? We often see enormous selflessness and self-awareness from the horse person. That animal is in abundance of welfare. They are healthy. The tool use doesn't extract discomfort or pain for compliance out of them. That person and the horse and the horse has a mechanical skill set that is extremely effective and consolidated. That person is able to advocate for the horse in real time and dot, dot, dot. I believe the horse has been able to take care of and advocate for their human in real time. And that horse often has an appropriate horse keeping lifestyle and diet for their, uh, their training modality. These are the parts and pieces of horsemanship that is real, that works, that avoids fads, that avoids a cult of personality, that, that evolves past exploitation and extremism. This is what I'm trying to do with emotional horsemanship. I'm really not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to make a wheel work because right now it feels like a square wheel. So going forward... I make a solemn vow that this podcast remains horse-focused. I will not wander off this path on a journey to a cult of my own personality. I don't think I'm that special. I promise. Though I didn't like it myself in my family on my dad's side, I come from a long line of scouts. My grandfather was a scout hall guy. He ran a scout hall all his life. So, scouts honor. I make a solemn vow that the pod here remains horse-focused. I will be inviting guests. These guests are my friends, my colleagues, and people I deeply respect and often rely upon myself. I will actually invite you all periodically to join me in the recording studio where I will have a short webinar-style presentation and then turn over to your training questions. And we will actually have a question and answer section where you can we can discuss a training issue or horsemanship issue and we can work through it together in real time. And maybe sometimes it would be fun to have a guest with me to help me answer your questions. I will also run solo episodes, which I hope will be the least interesting part of this podcast. But... If you know me from social media, 
you will know that I have a bit of a reputation for writing posts and creating content on social media that gets people thinking and presents a different side of horsemanship and horse training. And that's what my business is built on. That's really what my reputation starts with. So I'm going to take these social media posts and morph them into spoken word. I'm hoping by doing so, having spoken word versions of what my social media already is, that by doing so, people who struggle to read my long posts for whatever reason, be that accessibility concerns, neuroatypical concerns, or just time concerns and logistic concerns, I hope that my work can become more accessible to those people. So welcoming those people here and acknowledging them humbly for joining us if they have been excluded so far. So I'm going to start wrapping up episode one today by explaining to you a little bit more the ongoing structure the podcast is going to take, at least for now. I'm going to start every episode with my guests by asking them a really big question. Because A, I'm sort of allergic to small talk. It really um, is not something I enjoy is small talk. As a deeply introverted person, um, I really enjoy big questions and I really enjoy deep conversation. So I'm going to start with a big question, which is, who are you? What do you do? And how do you do it? The point of asking this question is not to hear them necessarily answer it correctly. The point is to hear them talk. Just like with horse training, I'll ask horses big questions when I meet them, not because I want them to give me a quote-unquote correct response, but because I want to hear who they are. I want to just hear them communicate. I want to learn how they communicate and how they respond to big questions so that I can take smaller questions from there and pick little subjects and run with them. So, you know, all of my guests that I've already interviewed so far don't know that I'm going to start with this question, and maybe in the future people will be prepared with an answer. But I've tried in my invitations towards my guests to encourage them not to pre-prepare for the interview. My personal favorite podcast interviews are the ones where it's not canned, when it hasn't been rehearsed where it's no longer a, a competition about who can say the coolest thing because they've done their homework. I want to see authentic conversations and real, in the moment, in real-time responses, people actually thinking through the question and answering authentically in the moment. So that's why I start with that big question. Some people feel overwhelmed by that question. Some people immediately answered something else and we started on a different tangent. It's all good for me. Then at the end of the podcast, I'm going to take my guests and myself and you guys through three segments or three questions, a little bit like an old school radio show, where I ask these three segments or these three questions so that we can explore what is really, really important as horse people, what's really, really important as a community. These three segments are what the muck, tides of change, and take me home. What the muck, I will invite us to muck out something from the horse world, the equestrian industry, that we would like to see gone. Tides of change, where we will explore the ways we are contributing towards the positive tide of change in the horse world. And the last one, take me home. What is home for you as a horse person, regardless what journey you've gone on? What do you always return to? 
What is something that has been true for you from beginning until end, regardless what else you've learned? Because I think that's really, really important that we finish on that note. What is really important to us is what is important to us. And that is not up for debate. That's not up for change. Because change is only change if you're able to hold on to something true all the way through. So perhaps you would like me to be the first to answer these three segments. Okay, so here goes. What the muck? What the muck? What am I going to muck out today? Well, I'm going to choose serratons. Serratons are little known outside of Spain. If you're in Spain, you know what they are, and you're probably already groaning. Let me explain. A serraton is a metal noseband that goes on the top of the horse's nose or under the horse's nose and then is strapped to their nose with a leather band, often on leverage, connected to a halter or even to a bridle and sometimes also connected to the bridle and a bit. Um, and on the skin-facing side of this metal noseband, it looks like a bread knife. So little serrated, uh, jagged edges, little um, triangular cuts into the metal. And it's called a serraton, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is Spanish for serrated. Some of them are covered in leather, but usually not. Usually they're just raw metal uh, facing on the horse's skin. So... If they're facing on the horse's skin, they're used as a pain compliance tool, um, often under the rationalization that it keeps people safe to exert that much pain onto a horse. It's really rare in Spain to find either horses on the market or even trained horses that have been exported. It's really rare to find trained horses within the mainstream market of Spain that don't have serraton scars. I'm really wanting to make sure I'm being very clear. I'm not dumping all Spanish horse people into this one category, but it is true that it is a challenge to find mainstream for sale horses from Spain that do not have scars on their nose from this piece of equipment. Out of my um, horses at home, Caleb and Sereno both have serraton scars. Caleb was trained in it. He also has a scar across his tongue uh, from an inappropriate bit. And um, he occasionally gets like sinusy issues uh, because of the damage onto his nose. And you really see the damage in the summertime. He has white marks all across his nose. And Sereno has them because it was a tool that was used when he was breeding as a youngster. They used it to control him when they were covering mares with him. So, though many different pain, potential pain compliance tools such as spurs, sticks, and bits can exist in a gray area where they're up for negotiation, where they could be good, could be bad, you know, it's all about tool use. I believe a serraton is only a torture device. There is no rationalization on God's queen earth that I will co-sign that I can agree that this is a good piece of equipment for a horse that will never cause any pain. It will only cause pain. They're so common and so ubiquitous. Not only can you get them at every single tax store, you can't find a clicker, you can't find a treat pouch, you can barely find a bitless bridle, but you've got a whole wall of serratons to choose from. But I've also seen them for sale at gas stations in rural 
in the middle of nowhere locations next to keychains and chewing gum you can buy a Seraton at the checkout counter. They're so ubiquitous that they're just kind of everywhere and accepted here. And often there's a very nonchalant atmosphere around their use in this country. So that is something that I would like to muck out. We can take all of them and throw them into a volcano and never see them again. And I think the world would be a better place. And for tides of change, for the first tide of change, I'd like to mention that I believe the future is with the educators, not with the performers. No hate, no heat, no judgment. I love everyone. Uh, Performers, you do you. If you've got horses that can do all sorts of amazing things and you can take them off and do demonstrations and all sorts of things, fabulous, love you, mean it, great, keep doing that. We need you. But I think the future really exists with educators because Most people don't need to teach their horses some of these really impressive wow behaviors. Like if you've got a horse that can canter sideways, pick you up at the mounting block and then read you the morning newspaper in Japanese backwards. um, That's impressive, but that doesn't necessarily help someone who's struggling with something basic. And the basics are basics not because they're easy, but because they're hard. That's why we do them first. Right, And we need more educators who are teaching basics in an accessible way, in a comprehensive way, in a supportive way, in a valuable way. So I believe the future exists with the educators, not with the performers. And I'm really here for the tide of change in the rise of educators in this industry. And lastly, take me home. What is home for me in horsemanship is, to use the science, oxytocin. As compared to adrenaline or dopamine, I prefer oxytocin. Gun to my head, pick one neuroendocrine profile that I could have forever with a horse, it would be oxytocin. Oxytocin evolved from vasitocin, which is an ancient lizard sex urge or lizard sex drive, and it evolved into mammalian care and nurturance. The experience of it is one of a warm glow. That's the best description I can give you. Warm glow. At its early stages of arousal, it won't cause any behavior. It won't cause any action. It won't cause any movement. In fact, it will be very still when it's felt only gently or subtly by the horse or by you. But when it's felt at full arousal, at full strength, it motivates movement. Can you imagine riding or training or moving with a horse and the movement is motivated not by the draw of dopamine or the push and pull of adrenaline, but by this warm glow of nurturance and care, let me tell you, when you have experienced that with a horse, you will want nothing else with a horse. And a lot of people think that they can train care and nurturance by haphazard means. So standing in the field doing nothing. You might get it that way. You might also get oxytocin by exploring dopamine modalities or adrenaline modalities. It can be a side effect. But with emotional horsemanship, which is home for me, I actually teach this in a targeted and specific way with mother and foal bonding or mare and foal bonding, which is the foundation technique of emotional horsemanship. I teach it on the Emotional Horsemanship Foundation online course, which you can explore and sign up for at any time through my website. This is a proprietary technique that I think I'm the only one who's tapping into this phenomena. Uh, There might be others, but I just don't know of them yet. 
get in touch if you are also tapping into this similar phenomena. I won't give you too much information today because I think that's a subject for another podcast or you can go check it out on the online course. But that's what's home for me. It's a warm glow between me and my horses. So I am scared to launch this pod, but that's exactly why I'm doing it. Fear has always been a good friend to me and kept me really safe in my life. And through it, through this pod, I hope that you and I can link arms and begin to rewrite sometimes the crappy storyline of the horse-human relationship and bring the horse into the light once more. You've been listening to the Emotional Horsemanship Podcast. I'm your host, Lucky Phillips. If you're listening to this in real time, that was the launch episode. And today, the launch day, we have episode two already available if you want to go ahead and binge listen. Episode two is with my friend and colleague, Laurie Halliday. It's a wonderful conversation and you can go ahead and listen to it right now. I'll see you there.